Hi, and welcome to Hyperfixations, the podcast where we invite various interesting people on to talk about their niche area of interest that they could just talk forever about. Here are your hosts. I'm Ali. And I'm Nigel. And today we have Daniel Handler. Daniel, how are you? I can't complain. And yourself? Pretty good. Thank you. I'm glad to hear it. I mean, I can complain, but I'm not doing it currently. Uh, well, I'm all ears. There's no reason why I should hog the microphone on this particular occasion. If you'd like to share your um, your own troubles or turmoils with the audience at large, I'm sure they would be delighted. I I feel like the I feel like the audience has heard enough like snippets of me griping about working uh, in the wine business that Ooh. it doesn't bear repeating. <laughs> <laughs> By, by wine business, I, wine business is a word which here means I pack boxes of it in a warehouse. Okay. Oh, yeah. So my vision of you wandering through um, sun-dappled vineyards um, proudly... No, there are people in the company who do that, it's just not me. I don't get the like perks of flying to France or like Argentina. I just, right. I, I just wander around a gloomy warehouse. Um, it's almost Kafkaesque. Yeah, <laughs> the opposite of everyone's fantasy about the wine business. Truly, yeah. The running theme is Nigel hating working in a wine warehouse throughout the podcast. I've worked here for like three years every summer, and it's not gotten any better. But like, it's got the lucrative appeal of money. Well, like, there's that. <laughs> um. So, Daniel, what are you here to talk to us about today? Um, I enjoy talking frequently and enjoy thinking all of the time about various films loosely under the umbrella of Hammer Horror. Hammer being a British studio that has made a great deal of fairly low-budget films over the years, but has a particularly beautiful slice of them in the 1960s uh, that my wife and I watch incessantly. Um, we can never remember if we've seen one or not, and then we see it, and 45 minutes in, we remember, and we spend a great deal of time on the sofa together uh, deconstructing them over cocktails. Um, I adore them. I think that's... Uh, that's probably, like, the best way to go about rewatching something, is to get 45 minutes in and then go, oh, wait, I have seen this, but you've seen 45 yeah. minutes like it's new. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, uh, I mean, there's certain kinds of experiences with culture that you have like that, uh, that are pretty magical. When I, I uh, when I was young, I saw this movie called Oxford Blues, which is like an 80s uh, romantic comedy. But my friend and I had misread the schedule on cable TV, and we thought it was a horror movie. We thought it was like a slash <laughs> film. And so we watched this entire film as it as if it were a slow build up to a bunch of axe murders which never arrived and there's things like at one point <laughs> a woman says, i'm going to go take a shower and we were like oh no we're like oh yeah it's a shower and nothing happens and um it's a quite it's quite a magical experience and i've had book experiences like that too i read um master and margarita at a tender age uh, from this paperback that um, in America, at least, they they tear the covers off paperbacks when they haven't sold them and they put them in a bin. And so I knew that the book was... Oh, yeah, so you know if it's stolen, right? Supposedly, yeah. 
And so I got mm. it out of a bargain bin and um, uh, the author's name was not, because enough had been torn off the beginning that the author's name was not there, uh, nor was it, um, was I aware that it was translated. And so I just started reading this book because I thought the title sounded vaguely sexual, The Master and Margarita. And it turned out, of course, to be this bonkers Soviet parody starring an enormous monstrous cat. Um, but I, but, but the, but absolutely not knowing that, not knowing at all what kind of thing it was going to be, was a pretty magical experience. Pretty fun. Yeah. Like, now yeah. It's gone, completely blind. Yeah. It's almost impossible. I mean, I just saw a movie this week and I didn't know anything about it, but by not knowing anything about it, I still knew who was in it and vaguely what genre it was. But um, I missed... What movie just, was it? Um, uh, it was this movie called Emily the Criminal, starring Audrey Plaza, which is um, a fun movie. But, um, but I, I kind of knew what it was going to be. Plus, it was called Emily yeah, the Criminal. Yeah. So when you meet someone named Emily, you can be pretty sure that they're going to end up a criminal in one way or another. Um, that, that, that's fair. I'd like it if that film entirely subverted that, where it's called Emily the Criminal, but Emily is just like the nicest person you've ever met. Yes, yeah, exactly. It would be like my like it's cr- how nice she yeah. is. But I should say yeah. that my is... first um, uh, viewing of Hammer Horror movies was kind of blind in that way because these movies would play on local television channels in the, uh, on weekend afternoons. And my right. sister and I would be bored and we would turn one on and there was often either an inaccurate schedule or no schedule of what was on TV. They would just say, and now mm. the movie is. And, but you might miss that part. Mm. And I would turn yeah. it away, and so, the, and w- one of the things that I like about Hammer Horror mo- movies is that their um, restricted budget means that they can't actually show you whatever the monster is going to be. Um, the Frankenstein or the Dracula or the uh, zombie or the other kinds of creatures, and so they have this kind of tawdry romantic melodrama about 60 minutes um, that takes place in a kind of vaguely uh, 19th century or very early 20th century locale and um, it has Peter Cushing almost inevitably in it and or Christopher Lee and you watch this kind of very slow drama play out and when my sister and I were young we have we had no idea that it was a slow drama that was going to lead to Frankenstein we just knew it was a slow Mm. drama and so uh, we didn't get to watch a lot of television. And so when we happened to be alone and my parents weren't around, we got to watch these movies. And the magical experience of really not figuring out what kind of movie it is for a long time is, uh, I think, mm. part of what made that so attractive to me. Yeah. Like a werewolf movie that starts with a beggar and he crashes a wedding and the king is cruel and throws him in the dungeon and then dies the king that is and so the beggar is forgotten about for many years and then finally gets out and uh, uh attacks the a young mute woman who's been working as a maid and then she has a baby and the baby grows up to be a werewolf and it's that kind of long um often sexually uh uh strange um kind of garish melodrama for a long time, and particularly when I was a child, I would just watch these things in utter fascination. And now when I watch them, 
uh, usually with my wife or my friend Daniel. Uh, we love to watch just, you can feel the machinations of how do we make a 90 minute movie about Frankenstein if we only can put the monster of Frankenstein in it for about 15 minutes. How, how can we mm. arrive at that point? How can we make a werewolf movie but not have a werewolf show up until minute 75? And uh, I love that, the, the kind of, the way that they can make a movie fascinating and monstrous without a monster is just something that I adore. It's like, yeah. the, like the Jaws, like Dilemma, like, you know. I was going to say, just like the shark in Jaws. Yeah. yeah, like they couldn't, and that's, that's there for like less than 15 minutes. Like, you know, like the whole thing was they couldn't afford to make it look good. And no one's no one's insult no one's talking shit about Jaws now, like so. <laughs> yeah, and the thing is, Jaws is actually good, whereas these movies have this um, patina of ineptitude that uh, they have charm. <laughs> yeah, they're, I mean, you have to you have to enter them in the right mindset. And in my mind, I mean, the Hammer the Hammer Studio made countless movies, and many of them are just too god awful to even contemplate. But the ones that I love. Or this classic slice of monster movie. It's usually Frankenstein or Dracula, and then there's a few kind of mummy and werewolf, and uh, there's one about the Gorgon. There's that. And then there's an earlier slice, almost as much fun, um, which is usually late 50s or early 60s, a little earlier. They're usually black and white, and they're a slow-moving, um, kind of more gothic, although the setting is often modern, um, a kind of a complicated con story. So, right. a, you know, they've told a girl that her father is dead. So when she sees him in the restaurant, she thinks she's being haunted by the ghost. So she throws herself off the cliff. So the second wife gets the money. It's that kind of thing. Right. Uh, is this is this sort of like Vertigo by Alfred Hitchcock? This feels like. They're all of the same the same era where they have this strange thing of like we're going to trick someone with ghosts. Yeah, there's a it's or um you know two people who you think hate each other um, meet in the middle of the forest halfway through the movie and start to kiss and you realize they've been in on it all along. You know, there's it, oh. uh, so it um I hate to compare it to Vertigo because I feel Vertigo is kind of a glorious emotional movie that gets at the uh, horrifying core of romantic love, whereas the these movies. Someone just says, like, well, we have a house with a swimming pool, so something should be able to come out of the swimming pool late at night. Um, <laughs> and, but, That's yeah, the most like, demented, yeah. like, selling a property thing I've ever heard. We've got a pool, yeah. so, like, a monster has to come out of it. Right. <laughs> exactly. It would only be right. And so that's what the film yeah. is thinking. And then meanwhile, the characters in the movie are doing things that make you say, hey, have you ever thought about just getting a divorce? Or this... about getting a job? Maybe? <laughs> maybe you get a job and make money that way, you know, rather than pretend that the curse has come back and turned you into a madman. You know, these... Um, these plots that they're doing in the movies are often years long. They've been pretending that something is so for a huge amount of time just to finally get their hands on a fortune. And you begin to think, uh, this fortune is probably not worth it. Mm. You'd be getting that mm. kind of vibe. Yeah. Yeah, I like this because now that you... I, I don't think I've ever seen any of these like 
Hammer Horror films that you've described, but at the same time, maybe I have and I've forgotten them in the same way that you can now watch them and get 45 minutes in before realizing. But it's also like, how yeah, could you guess how many of these plots go from the outset? Yeah, you can. They're so like bonkers. Yeah. And, and that's why uh, it's one of the reasons why my wife and I can't remember when we've seen one is because, um, you know, 18 months will go by. And we'll say, oh, this one looks good. And we'll, mm. we'll start it up and we'll say, oh, it has Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee, but that could be anything. And then there's a long time where we think, oh, this is about two young people secretly eloping in a small German village. I didn't remember anything about this at all. And then they cross a river and frozen in the river is Frankenstein's monster. But they're carrying torches, so they drop them and the ice melts. And we think, oh, now we've seen it. We've seen this one. And it's a really beautiful moment for my wife and me to be re-entranced for the umpteenth time by a ridiculous story. And there's something about it being ridiculous that makes it more entrancing. Um, mm. My friends make fun of me. Yeah, it's... Because so I don't want to see so many modern films. Someone will say, oh, this is supposed to be so good. And then I'll look at it. And uh, we finally came up with an acronym for it in my household, which is PWP, People with Problems. It's the kind of thing <laughs> I'm not interested in seeing. Um, oh, their marriage mm. is going well. That's the whole plot of the movie. No, thank you. I'm not interested. Oh, she's a teenager. Is this marriage story? <laughs> I was about to say. I was like, I haven't seen marriage story. Like it's countless movies every year, particularly around the end of the year when it's award season. Oscar, Oscar timeline. Movies about people doing things. And... I just don't yeah. know what movies are for. I think that's actually often what novels are for. I think some of the most beautiful novels in the world are, um, you know, kind of domestic and realistic in scope. Uh, not all of them, but many, many wonderful novels are like that. But for a movie, I think, if they're not planning a jewel heist, I'm not interested in seeing these people have lunch for any longer. Are they not planning a jewel heist? I'm not interested. And with a Hammer Horror movie, you can trust... What? Even if it starts a little slowly with a bickering couple getting off a yacht and getting into a sports car and driving to work, you know it's going to end with, she was never blind, or there was a person living in the attic and we've unleashed him and he's murdering anyone. It's a, And there will be a jewel heist at some point, exactly. like, or something there, similar. Yes, if there isn't a jewel heist, there'll be something equally absurd. And uh, it makes the movies quite magical. Um, and so for people who are interested, there's... Um, a whole Frankenstein series uh, and a whole Dracula series um, in which Frankenstein's monster oh. uh, and or Dr. Frankenstein and or Dracula are defeated at the end of the movie in such a way that you know they're coming right back. You know, they'll be they'll right. tossed down a hole or frozen in ice or they'll be blown to dust, but the dust will be collected in some weird idol. Mm, yeah. You see the movie again and 45 minutes in, that ending that you dimly remember is suddenly back uh it's really fantastic i love it and um i've we've watched the whole frankenstein and dracula series countless times in order when we can remember the order but it seems like hammer horror can even barely remember the order and um some of them are harder to find also than others but it's um it's always this experience of these like ridiculously garish visuals um a slow-moving, dreadful story, and then an explosion of kind of very expected monstrousness at the end. Mm. Mm. I just, 
just on your point about you think that that's what novels are for, for like the domestic side of things. Um, have you read um, Good Morning Midnight by Lily Brooks Dalton? Uh, I just can't say that I have. Or I'm yeah. giving you a book recommendation. <laughs> this is hypothetical. Otherwise, no one Nigel recommends people books. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, it's about like this old man who's in the Arctic, uh, and he like he was part of a research team. Um, but the, like, and something happens on Earth, uh, but they don't tell him, and he said he decides no, he hates people, so he's going to remain in the Arctic Circle on his own. And then it's a dual mm -hmm. plot with these like five or six astronauts who went on a mission to Jupiter and are coming back to Earth, but they have no idea what's happened on the planet and are trying to like get in contact with um, Earth. And I don't know whether I should like spoil the moment that like breaks my heart every time, just because it's like the novel has room to like do this type of thing where people are just sitting around. Yeah. But oh, it's like the saddest a book has ever made me, I think. Um, that sounds lovely. I do like a sad book. I also like yes. the idea that astronauts have missed something. The heroes. Of yeah, because they're like they spent like five years or something away. It's like that. Um, uh, after twenty-eight days, right, where our hero is in a coma and he wakes up, and the world has been overrun by zombies. And there's that scene. He runs around for a while, not really understanding what's going on, and everyone's behaving abnormally and violently, and then. Finally, he says, what's going on? And the person says, what? And he says, I've been in a coma for 28 days. And then she says, I, oh. <laughs> I have some very bad news. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm so sorry, but like. Yeah. That's also <laughs> like, the framing enemy. device at the start of The Walking Dead, where Rick Grimes is in, is in a coma after getting shot. And he wakes up and like everyone is zombies now. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, and then it's, it's a premise that's mocked very well. In uh, Shaun of the Dead, in which uh, the character is so self-involved and slackery that he doesn't notice for a few days that there's a zombie apocalypse going on. So in early, yeah. in early scenes, you see him like helplessly hungover going to a bodega and someone is screaming and being chased in the background, but he doesn't notice. He's just in his own world, kind of. Yeah, he's just kind of... Uh, Speaking of... Um... He doesn't have time for your zombie <laughs> Yeah. Speaking of sad books, this is something I'm fulfilling a promise from like an earlier episode of the podcast where I said, uh, if we ever had you on the show, I would just have to like ask you why you felt the need to write that bit about Uncle Monty dying in uh, the reptile room about Stop, walking why? upstairs. That's that's another contender for the saddest a book has ever made me. Oh, um, I take that as a high honor. Um, you should. Yeah, it it is, but like, child me didn't need to read that. <laughs> you I think, was good, I don't know. When I was it. a child, I loved the sad parts of books. Those were my favorite parts. Yeah, and I think it was because my my life was, um, you know, quite stable and relatively uneventful as far as that goes. I mean, I had unhappiness, mm. but I, you know, I grew up in uh, in, in quite a deal of comfort amongst a, a basically happy family, and so. Uh, I loved reading about people who were just in unbelievably broken circumstances. I thought that was exciting. I'm guessing that's where a series of unfortunate events comes from. Absolutely, yeah. And my family was, had endured uh, terrible and broken circumstances uh, before I was born earlier. 
they fled Nazis and came here to America. And there are stories about what went on with our extended family, mm. those who survived and those who didn't, were very moving to me. And I and I liked those stories, you know, not only in a learning about your family way, but so um, I I mean, uh, off, when writing a series of unfortunate events, there was times when I kind of couldn't wait to have the really wretched thing happen so I could kind of wallow in it for a few paragraphs. That was my idea of a good time. Yeah, just like because of it, like you just like sitting down to write, like, you know, what like horrific thing is going to happen to these children next? And you're just like, oh, they're going to love this. <laughs> well, I don't know about they're going to love it, but I knew I loved it. <laughs> I, had like, I did love it, but also why? <laughs> but I knew that I was interested. <laughs> yeah. One of the questions I wanted to ask about Hammer Horror Films is uh, like at the start going into it was that like these seem to be, despite their like, kind of hokiness and they're like faffing about and like inability to get to the point because their budget precludes them from having the monster they still seem to like inspire a lot of people in like how they write or how they like create art and i was going to ask how these might have affected your writing but from like your descriptions earlier on and and now it seems to be that like a lot of them do sort of uh, feed into uh like especially a series of unfortunate events um i don't know it, like is that a thing you were conscious of when you were writing the series originally or any of your other books like under daniel handler um i think a lot of melodramatic i uh, a lot of dramatic melodramatic culture came my way when i was young and i, I would put hammer horror movies with that very much so where something dramatic is happening um you know, uh, very quickly, which is certainly what is happening in those slow beginnings of Hammer Horror. They're not uneventful. They're just, you just don't understand how they're happening, uh, how they're leading us mm. to a werewolf or to a vampire. And, um, okay. but I was a, um, I had a voice when I was a parent. For a big opera, it was part of a conference in the audience and, um, those extremely melodramatic plots, you know, where everything's fine with a, a young couple, but 45 minutes later, the woman has gone completely mad and is murdering someone. That was my idea of a good time for sure. Um, the work of Edward Gorey and Zilpah Keeley Snyder and John Belairs and Roald Dahl, all these children's authors who like to use high drama and kind of um, uh, extenuating circumstances. <laughs> Uh, yeah, like the life. witches um, by Roald Dahl, where they're like, well, how long does a mouse live because you're changed into a mouse now? And they have to come to terms with that. That's, yeah. that's fucked up. Yeah. But then he was like, he was like, oh, I'm grand with dying in like 10 years. Because like, uh, like, like, that book, it's really good, but like. Hmm. <laughs> it's going to be me asking why. <laughs> Well, I think, I mean, I think part of what makes certain kinds of children's books delicious when you're young is you have a feeling that you, maybe you shouldn't be reading them, that maybe they're, mm, yeah. you know, and, and I think that's part of what those details have. Um, Definitely. And, uh, and I always think that's funny just when people sometimes criticize my work and they'll come to me and say, um, oh, this is uh, this doesn't uh, this reminds me of when I was young and I read something that was just I shouldn't have read. And I think, yeah, you, but you loved it. 
(laughs) And here you are. You're not speaking to me from prison or something. You've lived like a productive life. And you read some literature that you couldn't get out of your head when you were young. Congratulations. That's what it meant to do. We all have that one thing that like remains stuck in our head forever. Yeah, you won't actually know this, Daniel, but um prior to prior to you joining the call, we were talking about films we hadn't seen before. And like this kind of ties back into like having not seen a film or not being aware you've seen the film. But I was talking about how I had seen the Shawshank Redemption at like age eleven or twelve because we had my parents had it on DVD, and like I remember doing a research project in primary school about it, and I like I don't remember what it was for, but I have a memory of using one of the like clunky computers in the back of the room to look up the actors' names because I didn't know who Tim Robbins or Morgan Freeman were. But like looking back, I was like. Why was I watching that film at 11? <laughs> um, because, I mean, I think you thinking about is it actually possible to break out of prison, I think is, is exactly the kind of dramatic story that's attractive. Yeah. It's an important story. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> I remember when I was in um, high school and I was being shown out. But again, I have a sudden memory of having seen it when I was a child. And I remember I said, oh, it's a sled. And I was watching it in a classroom. And I was like, what? And I was like, it's a sled. Rosebud's a sled. Uh, and of course, that's a really funny thing to learn. Oh, no. Because, well, because it doesn't really, the way that sled works in the film, it doesn't really help you. In fact, don't, you know, if you know that it's going to lead to a sled, it's in some ways... All the more inexplicable. So, but I have a memory. Mm, yeah, you're kind of like okay. That I was like, oh, I just remembered. It's a sled. <laughs> Amazing. You're like, you I just get up, knock on the desk. It's like, don't need to, don't need to watch this anymore. It's a sled, guys. Yeah. <laughs> Might I ask about poison for breakfast? Would you like that? Yeah, it's just well because I know it's your most recent book, and I know as well um, that Susie had said you had done, in your own words, a gazillion interviews about it. But just, I'm curious about why you returned to that kind of world as as Lemony Snicket. This is something that like felt very curious to me, and I think this is maybe tying back into the point about things that stayed with you from your childhood, because like. I read a series of unfortunate events and they stuck with me from childhood long before I like read any of your like books for adults. Mm. And so like I got to I got to a stage where I had to like seriously come to terms with the fact that like you had a real name that wasn't like the same name as a character in the book. Um but then to like see to see like a lemony snicker book under that name on a shelf. I'm like what made you go back to that? Um, well, I just think it drew me. I mean, I wrote um, a series of unfortunate events. I wrote all the wrong questions. And um, there's been, you know, various uh, smaller books in between. And it's something that I do for a while, and then I leave for a while, and then I come back. And in the case of Poison Breakfast, hmm. 
I had this idea that I could write a book that was um, something of a murder mystery, but very philosophical and kind and the closest to nonfiction that you can talk about with a straight face in the world of Lemony Snicket. That was interesting to me. And um, I was working on the Netflix adaptation of a series of unfortunate events. And I thought I was in, a, in Vancouver, Canada, where they were filming it. Um, that's what uh, they wanted. They said, oh, and then as so often happens between writers and mm, yeah. entertainment conglomerates, they said, actually, we don't want you around. And so I suddenly had a summer free, which felt like childhood. You know, I had a whole summer where I had nothing to do. Mm. Uh, no one expected anything of me. Certainly mm. was thinking that I was writing a book because as far as everyone knew, I was working on this television show. Uh, and so I was in a small town in Massachusetts and I uh, went to the library every day and I sat down and I thought, I'll just try this idea. And if it is really a book, then hooray, I have a new book. And if it's not, then no one knows that I was writing this thing. Yeah. So I can just tuck it away and it'll and no one will be the wiser. And that was a very magical time to be writing a book, to just do it every day, to feel like in some ways, like I was starting out on something and that um, no one, the kind of capitalist forces with which you get attached, if you're lucky enough to be a visual artists aren't kind of peering at you saying, well, what's next? What are you working on? How can we sell this? And mm. so then I had yeah. a draft of it and um, I put it away for a while, which is really what I like to do with books, um, which is another uh, wonderful thing of when about having that kind of time to do that. And so I used to put it in the crisper drawer of the refrigerator. I don't know if you guys call it the crisper. What do you call the drawer in your refrigerator where you keep your vegetables? The one at the Mm -hmm. I'm going to so sound very basic and say the, the vegetable drawer, yeah. Vegetable. I just call it the drawer. That's and a much more Because it's called the crisper here in America and keep things crisp. Crisper? The crisper. Oh. Crisper. It's kind of where you put vegetables oh, in the see, drawer I, and then forget. I thought you were saying Christopher. No. The Christopher <laughs> drawer. And I was like, you've given it a proper name? <laughs> <laughs> This is, a, this is a guy. His name is Chris. Yes. No, his name is Chris. Yeah, he, he's supposed to keep our vegetables crisp. Yeah. But of course, it's the drawer where you put your vegetables and you forget about them. And so they don't get crisp. Mm, yeah. Uh, yeah. But, um, but I used to keep my uh, manuscript there when I would be waiting for, oh, I would leave it alone for a while and I would put it in the crisper in the refrigerator. Uh, because I had some notion that if the house burnt down, it would be safe in there, which I don't know if that's true, but that was my feeling. And, that sounds like it seems like a nice idea. Yeah, right. It's it seems like it makes sense. Although I haven't heard of anyone yeah. whose house burned down, and they said, as it turned out, everything in the refrigerator was fine. <laughs> I don't think anyone says that. But um, <laughs> yeah, the mustard. Yeah, my entire house was destroyed, but my mustard is fine. I still have the same. <laughs> I still have the mustard that I always love. Um, and so uh, then my wife and I had a discussion, perhaps an argument in which some people said that the crisper is where you keep vegetables, perhaps because it is called the vegetable drawer in other nations. Um, and some people think it's for manuscripts. And at the end of this conversation, I was given a gift by my wife, which is a fireproof box that I keep in my closet. So now I keep my manuscript in the 
oh my god box Amazing. which is more likely to be safe in a fire than the crisper and so i kept uh this the manuscript for poison for breakfast in a fireproof box uh for about a year and then i took it out to see if it was a book and it felt like it was a book um so this is a very long mm-hmm. answer as to how that I, mm-hmm. how i reached it but i think but i guess my answer uh matches the structure of the hammer horror movies that i enjoy which is that i told a story that is- hopefully melodramatic enough to keep your interest but finally 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 explained why i wrote the book but uh i yeah but coming but but stepping away from lemony circuit for a while and then coming back always feels like the right thing to do so yeah. last year and i anticipate i'll be stepped away from snicket for a little more and then i will come back mm. so in a way when you like stepped away from like at the end of all the wrong questions that was the equivalent of dracula's ashes being caught up in an like an idol where you know oh he'll come back eventually <laughs> exactly yes <laughs> um in fact at the very end of all the wrong questions lemony snicket uh, leaves the town uh, and circumstances uh, under which he's been working and investigating, and he goes into the forest. And so um, when we find him again, he'll be at, at least have gone into that forest. At least. Mm. Yeah. But also, like, in, in this analogy, is the fireproof box the, the jewel heist? Just... I feel like it's important for you to have had a jewel heist. <laughs> um, well, <laughs> I think if this, is, I think if the fire, I think if the story I've told you is one of the Hammer Horror movies about Dracula, then I think the fireproof box is like the frozen river. I think the fireproof box is finally the thing that brings along the monster. Like there's one of the Dracula, one of the horror, uh, one of the Hammer Horrors about Dracula that I really love. Um, starts with a uh, very stern clergyman berating his daughter for uh, you know dressing inappropriately and spending too much time with a young man and he's very strict and and puritan in his values and then mm-hmm. he says like well, well we'll talk of this more but i have to meet with all these other civic leaders as i do uh once a month and then he gets picked up in a, a horse and buggy and he and like the the burgermeister, the chief of police, you know, a, a small handful of um, uh, of very prestigious people in the city are all get together in the same horse and buggy and they drive outside of town to the next city and then they go through a secret entrance where there is a bordello and they're treated to like all manner of sinful treats. And they are uh, relaxing at the bordello. They're being entertained by a young woman who's performing with a snake and being introduced by a kind of low-rent Joel Grey, like a low-rent uh, cabaret mm. singer. And then a very striking young man walks through the bordello and the owner of the bordello says, oh, this man, he comes to town and like the women pay him. That's how powerful and sexy he is. <laughs> so these older gentlemen from the city take him out to dinner and say you know we have experienced all forms of of chemical and physical pleasure known to man and we're hopelessly bored and this man says well i'm going to take you to a store and they go to a store where a small flask of dracula's blood is to be had for a great deal of money and they go to dracula's burnt out castle and this young man drinks the blood and dracula comes forth and it's again a huge long story (laughs) 
that it's full of interesting things, but doesn't seem to be pointing towards Dracula. And I think that that's the story in which I was thought I was going to be in Vancouver and wasn't. And then the vial of blood, I think that that would be the, the fireproof box in which I keep my manuscript. I'm loving this analogy. Yeah. Yeah. I, Quick I, question about that plot. <laughs> yeah. Does does like one of many? Um, just does the, does the young man transform into Dracula, or is Dracula like? Does he arise from someone having drank his blood in his ancestral home? Well, it it's it's a it's a slightly Renfield arrangement. If you're familiar with the original story of Dracula, in which this mm. young man thinks. Now right. that he's brought Dracula back, who is Christopher Lee, of course, Dracula will be so grateful as to kind of let him into the dark and beautiful world of vampires. But as anyone who knows, uh, that's not how it works. Um, and so uh, yeah. Christopher Lee goes wild, and the young man who had great plans to be a servant of Dracula uh, ends up disappointed. Could have just stuck to being such a striking man that the uh, women at the bordello paid him that he should have stuck with that plan. That's right. Yeah. But that'd be a lesson to us all. Truly. Yeah. So, like, how many of these, how many of these were there? Do you, like, I mean, I'm not asking for a specific number, but you've mentioned that, like, Peter Cushing right. and guess, Christopher Lee seem to be in like a lot of them. Yeah, I would guess that there's maybe six uh, Frankenstein movies, six or seven Dracula movies, uh, um, you know, three mummy movies. Where are we? So that's like 16. Let's say of assorted uh, kind of classic monsters of that type, there's probably 20 films. And then of the other type, there's probably a little more. So I would say 30. And then, I mean, um, Hammer Horror made a bunch of movies. I mean, my, my wife and I fell pretty deep down a rabbit hole, but um, they've made, uh, they made some really terrible war movies and some other kind of movies that try to be ghost stories that aren't good. They um, made a series of movies, I, I guess, off the kind of idea of Fu Manchu or other things where... Um, extremely offensively stereotyped villains supposedly from Asia are uh, responsible mm. for all kinds of torments and things like that. Those are just like, uh, I mean, they're unwatchably, they're unbearably racist. And even if for some mm. reason you found the racism forgivable or not bothersome, the movie is also extremely terrible. Um, I'm trying to think. They made one movie about uh, cave people in which they're speaking only in an um, invented cave people language. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the, ha the Hammer Studio is enormous. So I would guess the kind of movies that I've seen over and over again that really fascinate me is probably about 30 movies. That's what I would guess. That's fair. That's a decent amount. Yeah, I'll say. Yeah. Uh, did they do the... Did they do the Vincent... Price, um, Cormorant, um, Edgar Allan Poe adaptations, or is that a different studio? I believe that's a different studio. Vincent Price was a little too classy for them. Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee are really their, um, they were their reliable money makers. Um, all reliable. Uh, uh, and it is, I, I mean, um, Christopher Lee is usually, uh, pretty silent and glaring in the movies, but Peter Cushing. I mean, God bless him. He just realized that he spent so much of his life 
putting on like a velvet vest and saying like, well, for science, I tell you, for science, we're going to do this horrible, <laughs> horrible idea. And, um, <laughs> and it's funny because when you, I mean, for instance, when I started showing Hammer Horror Movies to my kid, my kid recognized Peter Cushing, of course, from Star Wars, I think is how yeah. most people would first recognize Peter Cushing. And there's something funny. Yeah. Who, who is he in Star Wars? I've, in the, I've never seen Star Wars. In the original Star Wars Rambo movie, he's, a, uh, he's like a Darth Vader's second-hand human. In the first one, Grand Moff Tarkin, he's CG'd in in, the, in Rogue One. Right. Yeah, they, they bring him back quite pitifully. But um, I, I have a vague idea of who that is, but having never seen the film, I can't place it. Yeah, he's so in the very first Star Wars film that ever was, he, he basically gets to die instead of Darth Vader because Darth Vader is so excited. Of course, we have yeah. to bring him back. And so he's the one who's on board he's too Star cool. and gets blown up. And he's, he tortures Princess Leia. You're telling me they didn't kill off. You're telling me they didn't kill off Darth Vader, but then have him like entombed in ice or something? <laughs> Basically. No. I wish. I wish. <laughs> this feels like what I understand the like sequel trilogy to be, where everyone has come back somehow. Like somehow Palpatine returned. Well, he may as well have just been entombed in ice. Yeah, um, I'll, I'll, I'll try anything, I think, to bring him back. The, lure, the, the excitement of bringing him back is far greater than any uh, fidelity you would have to plot. But what I love, or what logic I love or is anything. to see Peter Cushing as a younger actor playing Dr. Frankenstein in, you know, supposedly huh. London, 1901. And then you have the idea that actually he'll grow up to be this international uh, or interstellar general torturing people just seems there's something perfect about it and um i never really had much appreciation for peter cushing he turns up in all kinds of british films but i never really had appreciation for him until i really watched him play uh frankenstein or van helsing over and over and over again giving it his all every time knowing that everyone expects this of him and yet not appearing to be kind of bitter and washed out the way you would imagine such an actor might be no, he's just—he's just here, ready to, ready to do it. It has a very um, "send in the clowns" vibe to it. How so? Where you're just doing the same—you're uh, just doing the same thing over and over again, like the the Stephen Sondheim song. Oh yeah, I thought you meant maybe specific to the musical. Yeah. Um, uh, no, yeah, I think. I mean, there are many actors like that, uh, but I think. Um, Peter Cushing uh, has, yeah, he has that slice of like kind of or, or, uh, century old science respectability, but also with like a touch of madness and uh, deceit. Um, yeah, and I think you can't, I mean, after he made a couple movies with Hammer Horror, you can't believe that they ever would have called anybody else. Um, yeah. Hmm. Uh, the um, on the the other kind of movie that were there uh, that Hammer Horror made these kind of black and white betrayal con game psychological terror movies. Uh, it's generally Oliver Reed, uh, who plays some um, madman or some person about to become a madman or a normal person that is, of course, eventually going to become a madman because of some other madman. Mm. Um, 
And he's another, he's very reliable to be extremely melodramatic, to chew the scenery, to be unafraid, to really push past the boundaries of ridiculous to something that feels like the sublime. Uh, and so, uh, and he plays a, a like a, an evil motorcycle gang or a bad boyfriend who's drinking too much absinthe. He's, a, he's like a bad boy, but then it all, all, always goes absolutely to deep madness by the end. It's pretty exciting. Love that. He's just destined to play the madman. I feel like that's something that we're kind of not seeing. And I don't want to turn this into like a, a criticism of the modern movie industry too much. But like, I feel like everyone is so much in the public eye that they can't as much just like throw themselves into something. And and like you say, start chewing up scenery like people could in the old days because it was like there's five films like ever being made. Uh. Well, I think the um, I mean I do think some of the most interesting stuff that it's happening in film right now. I don't think it's a coincidence that it's happening in horror movies because it's a genre that is commercially reliable. You know, oh, there's a new scary movie. I want to go with my girlfriend or, uh, you know, oh, this looks like something fun that we're all going to watch together. Um, and yeah. yet you can, there's so much room to be really experimental. It's never a PWP. It's never a people with problems, a horror movie. It's always got to have something exciting in it. But I do, what I think was part of the magic of Hammer Horror was that they had this very constrained budget that was often dependent on location. They just had an old house that they used over and over again. You know, they had a huge chamber that they could decorate to make it look like a lair or a tomb or like a dining hall where horrible Satanists were gathering. And so I liked that kind of thing. And I used to have a fantasy. I remember I actually pitched it to an executive at Paramount. Uh, I was on the Paramount lot when they were shooting one of the Planet of the Apes movies, the recent Planet of the Apes movies. And so they had this enormous set that they showed off to me. And I said, you know, before you tear down this set, you should have a contest and let, you know, a bunch of young directors trying to make it in film submit their idea for a movie they can make using this set. And then for a bare bones budget, you Ooh. just let them go. You know, they just have like a oh, skeleton crew and whatever actors they can convince to be in it. You know, this very kind of quick and, and dirty filming of a movie on this beautiful, you know, very ornate, very, I, I mean, realistic isn't the word, but, uh, you know, but heavily designed and executed set. Yeah. And, and I said, you know, if it turned out to be terrible, it could just be the DVD extra on the Escape from the Planet of the Apes movie, and who cares? But if it, but one, sometime it'll turn out to be magical. Somebody will have some idea that is so much fun. And you, Paramount Pictures, will have it. I really like Escape from the Planet of yeah. the Apes. Sorry, sorry, I just completely got lost you there. <laughs> no, that's all right. So I, uh, I, I, and I remember the the look in the Paramount executive's eye at what an absurd idea I thought this was. <laughs> and I thought, yep, this isn't going to happen. <laughs> look, maybe yeah. not. Still, though, I think, yeah, that has to be like. That has to be the most like interesting practical example of what people are doing with like. Um, things like 48 hour film festivals where you're given some form of constraint 
be it budgetary or time. And I, like, this is something that we, we've come back to a lot across the podcast. It's like how people make art within constraints yeah. where it's like a musician might take out an, um, an instrument that they use predominantly for an, like a whole album just to see what happens. Um, yeah. And I think like putting that skeleton crew of people in not only like harkens back to how things used to be done, but it's also like it allows people to make art with less of the baggage. Yeah. Well, because it becomes problem solving, which is something that I like very much in my line of work. I like thinking, oh, I want to have this here. I want to have this here. How can I link the, how can I have a story that leads me to this place? Um, and that was mm. the most parts of working mm. on the Netflix show would just be to say, okay, we, you know, we, certain things that are in the book are impossible to do, but how do we link up these two things that we absolutely can do? What can we put, how can we reshape the story just slightly to do that? And I think that's a whole lot of fun. And I mean, I just saw, uh, I think you can see that among inventive filmmakers. I just saw Nope, the new Jordan Peele film. And you just see that Jordan Peele is fixated on a, a handful of things. He wants them all in the movie. Mm. He wants horses in the movie. He wants a cloud that never moves in the movie that turns out to be this strange thing. He has an idea about a he flashback to an old sitcom and an act of violence that he thinks would be interesting. He, and he just, yeah. just this handful of things. And he's worked out, I think in the case of Nope, quite elegantly, he's worked out how all these things can be in it. But you can see that first on his mind was just this kind of um, collection of, of objects and moments. He just loved that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, nope. I saw Nope as well re recently, like two nights ago. It was very good. But yeah, I know you are right. I'm fascinated by this because I haven't seen it. Um, but a cloud that never moves? Yeah, it's. I yeah. mean, the movie takes like, place in the desert, and um, yeah, there's a, and so there's this very flat. Let there's a lands. I mean, there's a deep valley and kind of a generally flat and arid landscape that is the movie. And so when you're in terrain like that, the clouds are more prominent than they are in other places. And so there are these kind of shots of rolling clouds and clouds gathering, and there's a storm, and um, there's a cloud that doesn't move. And yeah, it's like. I mean, I, I don't want to give away the the whole film to people who haven't seen it and maybe mm -hmm. listening, but um, it's I I felt that I could tell that that's one of the ideas that Jordan Peele had from the very beginning of the film. He just he I in my head he must have been someplace. He was wandering around someplace, and he thought, "What if that cloud never moved? What if it just stayed there? What would that mean? What would it be?" And then yeah, and like. There's one thing that happens in the movie that, like, people point out is very similar to a tweet that he made about a dream he had a couple of years ago, like in 2014. Oh, yeah. yeah, like, um, but uh, yeah, it's just kind of like that. He's like, I want a cloud that never moves, I want horses, and I want a chimp. Yeah. And we will see where we go from there. Hmm. I may have to pay, I may have to like pay the cinema a visit and watch this. You should. Yeah. And let me know what you think. I yeah, I do like the idea of having It's less obvious in novels, but I know from my own writing and from novelist friends of mine 
um, uh, that it's it's a very similar urge. Yeah. You know, you have something that you can't let go of, and then yeah. you have something that belongs in that book next to it, you feel, and then you begin to add kind of scaffolding and shaping that can put both those things in it. And um, Definitely. And then it's, I mean, and it's, but you can watch it sometimes over the length of a, of a writer's career. You think, oh, they like that. Um, but you can, but I mean, I have friends who are working on books and they just say like, I, this has to happen. And then this has to happen. And that is the most feeling. And yeah. Think, okay. Well, you haven't quite gotten there yet, maybe in this draft, but you need to adjust <laughs> the story accordingly, but you're going to get there. This is where you're going to land. Yeah. You will get there. Yeah. I like that idea of having an idea or something that like sticks in your head and you have to get it out into whatever you're working on. Um, just, I, I don't know. As fa as, I, I think it's a fascinating concept to have something like exert so powerful a control over you. You need to create something to put it into. Yeah. Definitely. Now this is just making me think of when I went to Amsterdam and like s took mushrooms and like really, really freaked out and just like scribbled down a 12 page TV show, like <laughs> plot document, which was like, it looked, I was like inside while everyone else was outside. Uh, and so I seemed like a crazy person. Uh, I seemed like a, the protagonist of one of those um, old Hammer horror films where I'm a sane person who's become Reed crazy. Like, to, like, go mad. Yeah. Um, but like, I, I was really fascinated by the, we found there was a trap door in our house and I was like, well, what if there's like something under that trap door? Cause we moved the stuff on top of it. It was just pipes, but I was like, well, what if it wasn't pipes? Uh, <laughs> and then I ended up plotting this like trippy other world type thing. And, but like my mind was the clearest it had ever been. I was like, oh, I know how this goes together. And then this thing has to be there too. Yeah. That is. That sounds really fun, kind of, right. but also scary. It's it House of Leaves. <laughs> yeah, you know that novel. I love House of Leaves. It's like my, one of my favorite books. I wrote part of my um undergrad thesis oh, yeah. on it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, um, it was the use of. I think there's something. I think it captures. Uh, I think the fear that it captures of. Um, the way that the house begins to show its own peculiarities and hauntings. That taps on primal mm -hmm. thing. I mean, the book is very experimental. And so, I, I mean, I know a lot of people who love it and I know a lot of people who don't like it at all, but everyone responds to this idea that the house doesn't quite add up. There begins, there's a secret space in the house. Um, I think that speaks to something really scary. Everyone's unnerved. Yeah, because especially when you get further into the book, you find out that, like, it's existed for hundreds of years, which is a thing that, like, a lot of people don't seem to discuss in it, because I had to, like, do a lot of critical reading for stuff, and it's not as discussed, but there's, like, parts from the 1600s where they're like, oh, yeah, we found stairs just out in the middle of nowhere. Just some stairs, like, just chilling out there, like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Alan Warner Redshift is another great book that plays with that. Um, it, ha it takes place at various points in time, and 
you 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 get to watch kind of both shoes drop a lot. You know, oh, this object that we're burying here ah. is going to become three hundred years later is going to become very important. And uh, it's yeah. a, it's hmm. it's a fun when you're under when you're reading that book. You you kind of live under the spell of knowing that um, you're a visitor on a place that's had a, a long history. No matter where you are. You know that that you are uh, you're the most temporary thing often about the land you're standing on. Yeah. Uh, did you ever watch Dark on Netflix, Daniel? No. Ah, it was kind of that. Like this is like a big Netflix thing. It was a German language time travel series, and it started off with like the disappearance of a child in a small like rural German town, and everyone going looking. Like right. you know, that's a setup you've seen thousands of times before but like the child has actually been sent back in time mm. and so you have a load like that's like the fairly basic premise and so i won't spoil much more but you have loads of those moments where you like realize something that you thought was innocuous is like something from a different character moving through time in a different right. way uh and so you do also have those season three was a bit of a letdown so like go into that maybe knowing it if you're going to watch it um, well, I mean, I think that's the most moving part about the Once and Future King, right? Is that Merlin is living yeah. from everyone else. And so his own kind of emotional horror and moments of severe detachment and confusion come from really living in a different time. And I, rem I, I mean, the, I read that book for the first time when I was really young, and then I reread it recently. And um, I think because I'd gotten older, I found that even more moving. But um, but even down to the title, the Once and Future King, that um, it, you realize that that's the book's main concern is that we all are traveling through this thing called time, and that uh, we don't think about it much or think even of what we mean about it until it's interrupted in some way, until it's challenged in some way. Yeah. The concept of time is quite terrifying. Um, <clears throat> like when you stop and consider it, the fact that we, we can do precious little to change it. Um, it just keeps moving and we, you know, like the end of Gatsby, we beat on ceaselessly back right. into the past, boats against the currents. Mm. Yeah, I mean, um, I twice I have explained to small children in my extended family about time zones. That's just something that's happened randomly twice. You know, we'll all call and I'll say, oh, hi, how are you? And then they'll say, oh, what do you do? And I'll say, oh, I, we're just about to go to bed. And they'll say, go to bed? And I'll say, oh yeah, it's later where I am. And both times to hear a child kind of trying to process that pretty wacky truth for the first time. You know, I'm like, no, it's dark it here quite now. wacky. And, and they say, what? Yeah. <laughs> and then when it's a dateline, you know, like, oh, no, it's Tuesday. What? Like, what the? Yeah, like, I, although I do remember when I was a child and I was, like, you know, kind of told about time zones. I thought it was that every place had a vastly different um, time zone, no matter where you were. So when my dad and I went to... England to London to do the family and my mom rang us and it was kind of morning like and we were on holiday so we had a bit of a lie-in like you know so 
she rang us like you know like and we were like still in bed and I was just thinking and I remember just thinking like why is she calling us when she knows it's like you know like way earlier here than it is like over there like you know like an hour's plane journey away like yeah it's a strange it is it's very strange um I, I I like I understood time zones but didn't understand how they actually applied to the world yeah yeah this may seem like a a strange question not related in any way to Hammer Horror Films and it's not related in any way to Hammer Horror Films but um do you have any strong feelings one way or the other on daylight savings time either Ali or Daniel I like it uh I don't um I like the evenings getting longer. Not a fan of them getting shorter. I would admit. Well, I mean, everyone likes it where everyone likes it where you get more sleep. That, that everyone likes that part, and then everyone likes hates where you lose an hour. Um, I am not in favor of it. I yeah. find it um, unnecessarily disruptive, and it does seem like it, I don't. It doesn't really seem to do a, a, a wit of good. Like you can stay up longer when the night. It's okay. <laughs> you can live your life differently according to the seasons, but um, you can't... But there's no reason to make that official in some way. That seems crazy. Yeah, I feel like I'm somewhere in between you. Uh, Just because this is the thing that stresses me out less so than time zones, because like a lot of my family was in Australia as a child, so I kind of like came to terms with time zones fairly quickly. Being like, oh, okay, this is a thing where they're just like the opposite uh, seasons to us too, but yeah. mm-hmm. when they discussed like a year or so ago getting rid of daylight savings times, it like upset me to a worrying degree. Where it's like, this is a thing I've become used to, and now you're going to take it away from me. And that's yeah, that's how I felt. Kind of like <laughs> I was like, I didn't even think I was this attached to daylight savings time. Daniel doesn't really care one way or the other. He's no, he's like, well, I mean, you can just live your life, whatever. I, um, I, I, Right. I I mean, I live in a city that um, where I I live in San Francisco, where I grew up, and that's pretty unusual for San Francisco. Most people have come here from someplace else, um, uh, near or far. And so, but one thing that I like is that as seeing all the other people that I know in San Francisco getting attached to certain things, businesses or schedules or anything that has everything to do with when they arrived here. You know, so they'll just say, what? I can't believe that bar is gone. That bar has been there forever. And I think, no, it used to be a Japanese restaurant. You just don't know. (laughs) And then then someone says, oh, it used to be a Japanese restaurant a million years ago. And I think, yes, but before that, it was this other terrible restaurant that no one remembers but me. And 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 so (laughs) that's what made, made me think of that you, you know, instinctively something that happens when you were a child or the way things are or the way things is that's how it should be permanently. Um, yeah. And my child was Although little. I... Uh, Otto would love to watch Thomas the Tank Engine, um, which which was not a phenomenon in America when I was growing up. That's but it's been a fairly recent British import. But I love that all the British people I knew said, "Oh, the you know, the right narrator is," and then it was whoever the narrator is when they were young. You know, depending on how old they were. It's whoever was yeah. narrating that show at that particular time. I love that. And they're like, that's the what that's the person. No other person is acceptable. That yeah. that It used to be um Ringo Starr from yes. the Beatles. And then they fired yeah. him because he kept showing up drunk to the job, if I remember correctly. 
fuck's sake, Ringo. Battled a good, like, a, like, but, like, ruined a good, like, a good opportunity there. I feel like, as an ex-member of the Beatles, though, he wasn't exactly starved for work. Well, no, but, like, that's a good kick. Yeah, it's a good gig. Yeah, well, I think, I, I feel uh, I, for people I, I, like Ringo, it often happens, I think, in pop music, that if you're not the um, principal songwriter, then it's it's difficult mm. to know what you're supposed to do after the original thing is gone. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's, and, and Ringo Starr is kind of maybe the most perfect example, right? He's a sheer icon, but what yeah. is he supposed to do? <laughs> just kind of yeah yeah it kind of sucks it's going to be some fun writing up the description for this episode when we're just going to say like talk about Hammer Horror Films we also end up talking about Daylight Savings when <laughs> Ringo Starr if only Ringo Starr were in a Hammer Horror movie that really would be the right way to end this conversation I I wish <laughs> The right way to end this episode is if all three of us have a jewel heist. Can we do? Can we do one now? Yes. Yeah. My mom says we can do a jewel heist. I tried to okay with your with film script about a jewel heist once. I didn't get it right, and so nothing ever happened with it. But, um, but I liked the idea that the people doing the jewel heist would be um, extremely uh, like women ambitious for wealth. And so they were. They would just wear the jewels. That's what I thought was the great twist. Because I always felt a confusing thing in hmm. most heist movies. They steal something, and then they always say something like, "Oh yeah, we got a great fence. We got, we can move this stuff." And I think, but that's the whole point. And if you steal a painting, you if you on steal to the jewel? a jewel, you're stuck with it until you really get cash, and that's a whole other adventure that is usually kind of swept under the rug. And so I thought, what if you just stole jewels because you yeah. liked jewels? Then you wouldn't even have to worry about a fence. I'd like that. Yeah. Now I'm wondering how I would do that with the heist. I legitimately started planning because I was bored in um, the first lockdown in yeah. 2020. Um, <laughs> I was going to steal the Book of Kells. Oh, wow. Nigel just committing to crimes. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, I got bored, and I got really um, entranced by the fact that, like, Trinity College, the college I go, well, no longer, uh, I've finished my undergrad there. Um, I'm starting the like, it, it's, <laughs> Oh, well, um, uh, I suppose uh, I should... Uh, Smoke in there, and, of course, was uh, led to see the Book of Kells, which is quite beautiful. Worth stealing, I think. Yeah, but it was like... Yeah, the, the the college was closed over lockdown, and there was like no people there really. So I was like, "This is the perfect time to like do a heist." Me right now about doing a heist. Just that Liam Gallagher tweet where he's like, "I'm not desperate. I just think it'd be a nice thing to do." <laughs> Spoken about trying to get away to back together. See, I don't know. This is the problem I'm going up against. You're where like, I don't know. I didn't think a few years ago in the zoo in San Francisco, these yeah. um, young men stole some koala bears and gave them to their girlfriends as presents, and the girlfriends uh, were horrified, not only by the theft, but by you know taking care of a koala, which, although it is adorable looking, is a formidable animal, and so the whole thing fell apart. And yeah, actually. 
like a nice idea, but like maybe more responsibility than is is necessary. I feel like that's a good place to end it. Unless you have anything else. <laughs> that sounds perfect. Perfect, uh, Daniel. Where can we find you? Is there, do you have any social media? Is there anything you want to plug? Like any anything you want to share? Oh, this is your space. no. I mean, the latest Snicket book is Poison for Breakfast. We talked enough about that. I think um, I'm working on a Lemony Snicket uh, musical on a stage show, um, but it's not it's not on stage Ooh. yet. So there's nothing to plug about it. But that is what I'm doing. Thanks. Cool. Uh, Nigel, where can we find you? Um, you can mainly find me on Twitter at Spicy Nigel, where recently uh, I've been tweeting, I've been continuing my ongoing uh, countdown till Avatar 2 comes out. Uh, it's currently 114 days until Avatar 2 comes out. Um, and I've just, I, I, I was tweeting about the, um, the first ever episode of Love, Death, and Robots that I saw, uh, which didn't really impress me much. Fair enough. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at AliCat underscore Ali spelled like alleyway and cat spelled with a K. And you can find me on Instagram at Ali, A-L-L-Y underscore K underscore Keegan. You can find the podcast uh, Hyperfixations P on Twitter. Or at Hyperfixations Pod on Instagram. Rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts, be that Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or in the crisper drawer of your <laughs> fridge, wherever. If you would like to come on to the show... <laughs> Normally, I like to come up with those on the spot, uh, and I didn't really have one at the end. And then I was like, oh, wait, I have a perfect one. Because like at the end of every episode, we have uh, a, a different new place where you can right. find a podcast. Um, the door's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Well the coolest podcast in town. Yeah. Sorry. Just yeah. try it. No, we're officially, we're officially using that on promo right, now. Right. <laughs> Perfect. Um, if you would like to come onto the show to discuss one of your hyperfixations, please feel free to reach out at any of the aforementioned social media. If you like the show, tell a friend. If you didn't, nobody likes a fucking narc. <laughs> and that is all for this week. Uh, Daniel, you were an absolute uh, well, delight. Thank you. It was thank a delight you. to be asked. I'm so glad that I got to chat about Hammer thank Horror you. movies for almost as long as I wanted. I could go on for just a few more hours, but that'll just be in my own head. We'll have a we'll have a, like an exclusive a page like we'll get a Patreon and we'll have a Patreon <laughs> exclusive where it's just we talk about it for like a four hour spend. It'll just be like me coming to your house and blathering on about it. That's all it'll be. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. As we go on our daily very, lives, just well. like a microphone behind us as you wander around, going, you know, actually, <laughs> um, <laughs> you're very welcome here. All right. like, um, Goodbye, all. Bye, everyone. <laughs> Bye.